Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Hey everybody, it's me, it's Edwin, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Leadership Podcast. Episode 21, I am happy to share my conversation with Justin Tuin. He is the co-founder and CEO of LoisRates.ca. He started the company in 2012 following a successful career as a senior executive with two prominent entertainment and technology organizations. I really enjoyed chatting with Justin Not only do we share our love for sports, but also managing fantasy virtual teams. He shared some valuable insights on growing within large organizations to currently building a business that changes the mindset of all Canadians. Before getting started, a quick thank you to my media partners at IT World Canada for their support of the podcast. Now enjoy the show. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, Justin, can you just maybe take a minute or two, introduce yourself to the listeners today? Tell us who you are and what you like to do when you're not when you're not leading businesses or growing companies. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Justin Tuin, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of lowestrates.ca. The easiest way to explain lowestrates.ca is that we are Expedia for personal finance. So instead of Canadians going online to compare hotels or flights online on sites like Expedia, we allow Canadians to go online and compare where they actually spend most of their money, which is on personal financial products like mortgages, insurance, credit cards, and loans. I actually started the business and co-founded it in 2012. So a lot of my time between 2012 and today has been spent on the business. About outside of that, I'm married and I have two kids. I have two girls, one who's seven and one who's four. I also really enjoy sports. I play a lot of tennis. I was a nationally ranked tennis player and I still play a lot, although my body doesn't uh, hold up as well as it used to. Uh, I love playing fantasy sports, which is actually quite geeky, but I go online and do a lot of that. And I love to watch sports like football. Outside of that, I really enjoy interacting with young entrepreneurs or people who have an entrepreneurial spirit. And I do things like judging entrepreneurs competitions from my business school, which was Queen's School of Business, as well as my high school, St. George's in Vancouver. And I love to invest. I have investments in a number of different real estate properties, some commercial, some residential, and also all kinds of different uh, different companies and so on. So that's the uh, the quick overview of Justin Tuin. Tell us about your current role today, now that you've been in it for five years. And what is specifically the Expedia experience? And, and what are you trying to do now with the business? Right. So... We want to be the place that consumers go first when they have a financial decision to make. And that is a really big challenge because where is that right now? That's the banks. I had a look at the most profitable companies in Canada and the five most profitable companies in Canada are the big five banks. And the reason is because they are able to charge 
whatever they really want to charge to consumers for these products. And they work with consumers where consumers spend most of their money. If you think about where you spend most of your money, it's on mortgage interest, it's on insurance of different types, whether it's car insurance, property insurance, life insurance, disability insurance. It's on credit card interest. It's on loan interest. And historically, consumers have really only had one option, which is go to the bank. And consumers haven't even thought about it. It hasn't even entered their mind that there's a better way. It hasn't even entered their mind that the banks could be taking advantage of them or not offering them the best product for their unique needs because Canadians haven't been brought up that way. Canadians in general have quite a low financial literacy level. And that's just not their fault. It's because the government doesn't teach it. The education system doesn't teach it. And it's just the way it's always been. People's parents went to the banks, their grandparents went to the banks. So it's ingrained in our minds to go to the banks for anything personal finance related. And it's really interesting because if you look at every other aspect of people's lives, they go online and they compare. You know, if it's for flights and hotels, they spend hours trying to save $100 on Expedia or Trivago. If it's for a car, they go on AutoTrader and compare. Even when it comes to daily items, where do they go? They go to Amazon and they compare. But yet, the area where they're spending most of their money, they just accept the first offer they're given at the bank. And so I thought, there's a better way. And it wasn't some brilliant idea that I came up with. The way that we came up with the idea was... I was spending a lot of time working in the UK, in England. And in England, there was a company called Money Supermarket, Dakota, UK, that launched in 1998. And every time I turned on the TV in England, anytime a bus went by me or I saw a billboard, I kept seeing advertisements for this Money Supermarket, Dakota, UK. They had Snoop Doggy Dog in their ads, a bunch of celebrities. And what was interesting is that 70, I found out, 70% of all consumers in the UK, started their personal financial journey, so started their search for a mortgage or insurance rate or credit card on these rate comparison sites. So just like the way how in Canada, everybody searches for flights and hotels on Expedia and companies like that. In the UK, everybody searches for financial products on sites like Money Supermarket and on sites like lowestrates.ca. And so I thought, you know what? We need this in Canada. Canadians need this. We're wasting so much money. And it just happened to be a time in my life where I finished working in the corporate world and was looking for a new challenge. And I thought, you know what? This is something that I can really get behind, that I can really feel good about, where there's a massive need for, and uh, and where we can really help Canadians. And so we started really slowly. Um, we launched with only $150,000. And we said, we're either going to make this successful, or we're going to uh, going to go out of business, and I have to go back to the real world and get a real job. And thankfully, it's gone really, really well for exactly the reasons that I just said, there's a real need for it. Um, and so, you know, today, we have about 2 million Canadians per year coming to our site. We facilitate over a thousand insurance quotes per day. So people coming online and comparing their options from over 20 different insurance companies. We save people time and money. And we also help with financial literacy because we don't only compare rates for people, but we also provide a whole lot of tips and tricks and articles in terms of 
you know, whether you're thinking about a mortgage or insurance or credit card, what are the things you th should be thinking about to make sure that you're empowered to make the right choice for your unique needs? And as a result, you know, we're growing quickly. Last year, we were the fourth fastest growing company, young company in Canada, according to Profit Magazine and Canadian Business. But we've just scratched the surface because the average Canadian still has never used a site like lowestrates.ca and we're eons behind the 70% penetration rate in the UK. So we really, really think that our job's not close to being done. And we're really excited about how we can help Canadians to save time, save money where they need it most, which is where they're spending most of their money. It's really evident that you're passionate now, and perhaps it's due to this business on financial literacy. So have you seen changes within the government or even with the rise of fintech companies in, in Toronto and Canada that, that this is maybe changing now as well, and we are catching up to the UK? Not really. I, I don't think so. We're, we're way behind the UK. In terms of financial literacy, right now, it's left up to Canadians to empower themselves and arm themselves to be financially literate. We're about to come out with a study that shows that Canadians think they're a lot more financially literate than they are. But who can blame Canadians because they don't have the resources? I went to business school and there was nothing about personal finance in business school, let alone for people who went to university or college in other subjects, let alone in high school. And I think that it's going to be very, very difficult, again, using a word inertia, for the government to put a program in place to effectively tackle financial literacy. I think it's going to be incumbent on companies like ours to get the word out that, hey, Canadians, you owe it to yourself to become more financially literate. And it's not intimidating. It doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be boring. You can actually feel great if you educate yourself and you start to make the right choices and you can tangibly see, hey, with the money I saved, I can go on two vacations per year with my family. Or, hey, with the money I saved, I can go out to dinner with my family once a week. You know, uh, people are so focused on, you know, not buying that Starbucks or Tim Hortons coffee every day, but they miss the bigger picture. So I really think that the only way this is going to happen is if Canadians start to realize by talking, by visiting sites like ours, that they need to take it upon themselves to become financially literate, that it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to come from the public sector, the government, the education system. I think it's going to be driven through companies like lowestrates.ca, but it's going to be slow because as I said, we don't have the money and neither do other companies that are trying to do similar things to what we're doing to get that message out there because that's going to cost tens of millions of dollars per year. You know, we spent $3 million last year on advertising, which was a lot for a small company that's growing like us. And that's a drop in the bucket. You need to spend, you know, three, four times that yearly in order to make an impact. And so it really has to, we really have to create a great experience for consumers and then allow word of mouth to, uh, to spread that. In terms of the early adopters to your site, are you finding it is a specific age group that's coming on i don't i don't see it uh, like my parents coming to this maybe not even even hearing about it so what are you seeing in terms of the market or, or your visitors so the way that we get people predominantly through our site is through google we did not have enough money to advertise at the beginning to acquire people so the first thing was how do we get people to our site and so we focused on google organic search or seo so how do we get lowestrates.ca to show up when people type the search terms like 
cheap car insurance or compare mortgage rates or balance transfer credit cards. So we spent a lot of time writing content on our pages and our site that would convince not only consumers, but also Google that we are the best choice for consumers when they put in those search terms. And it took a long time, 2012, 2013, 2014. We did not have many people coming to our site. But midway through 2014, we really started to see the hockey stick of growth where Google started to rank us really highly ahead of the big banks, big insurance companies, and big credit card companies because it viewed us, it was ahead of consumers. It viewed us as a better option for consumers because we were comparing the market for them. So the type of people that find our site are generally people that are very web savvy, that tend to search things out on the internet. And those people tend to be people that don't have the relationships with a bank or insurance company right now. So it's younger people that are driving for the first time, that are getting their first mortgage, that are getting their first credit card. It's also people that are new to Canada, that don't know where to go, that are using Google and the internet to answer the questions that they have. But where we really need to break into is to kind of the, the meat of the core Canadian market, the average Canadian, who right now doesn't know about us because they're just on autopilot with their bank, with their insurance company, with their credit card company, and they don't think to go online and even ask the question. So I want to turn more into who you are as a business leader, leading companies. And it's really fascinating when I do these interviews and talk, and talk to business leaders is how you got to where you are today. Every, everyone took a different path. And it seemed to me, and looking into your history, your LinkedIn profile, I read much, it seemed that you spent a lot of your career within CryptoLogic and you grew there. You grew as a business leader, moving all the way up to the VP level. So can you tell us, what did you do in order to grow? What, how did you change yourself uh, and, and to rise within the organization? Yeah, very good question. I started at CryptoLogic when I was 25, and I was there for 10 years. And I started as a product manager, and CryptoLogic was an online gaming software provider. And at the time, I didn't know that much about the internet, and I knew even less about internet gaming. But the people that hired me believed in me, believed in my ability, and I think that was you know, the first good move that I made was go to a company where I had a couple of mentors that believed in me, supported me, would allow me to take chances, allow me to make mistakes, and that would give me transparent, good feedback along the way. Because I think that unless you have that, it's extremely difficult to do better than average and to move up more quickly than just every two years based on slots. You really need to have people that believed in you. So how did I do it? How did I move from product manager all the way up to VP? It was very difficult because as I moved up the corporate ladder and I moved up very, very quickly, I moved probably five or six different positions over 10 years. I jumped over people that were older than me, that were more experienced than me. And there was a lot of blowback and negative feelings towards me from others in the organization who were older than me and more experienced, who didn't think that I deserved it, who thought, why does this 28-year-old kid deserve a vice president's title and everything that goes along with it in terms of responsibility, remuneration, etc.? You know, why not me? And so I needed to fight even harder in order to get those roles and get those accolades. But the way I did it was I had to prove without a shadow of the doubt 
the value that I brought to the organization. And that's what I would encourage anyone to do when they're in any role. They need to understand, okay, what does success look like in my role? What is it that this company needs from me? What is it that my boss needs from me? And really establish that. It can't just be in your mind that you know what's important and that you know what you're going to do. You have to make sure that your boss and your boss's boss recognize what excellent performance looks like so that when you deliver it, they can't argue with you and say, well, that's great, but it's not exactly what we were looking like from looking for from you. So I made sure that each and every single year, there were very tangible targets and goals that were set for me in my roles. And then I busted my ass to make sure that I exceeded them. And I made sure that I kept a very, very clear tally of exactly what I did, almost a brag sheet, if you will, so that I could clearly demonstrate my value to my bosses, my bosses, bosses, and the organization. And I could say, hey, this is what you wanted me to achieve. Not only did I do that, but I also did this. This is how much money I gave, I made for the company. So you have no choice but to promote me and to give me more money because I'm providing this value to the company. Now, at the same time, you can't be an ass about it. You have to be a good guy. You have to, you know, work with other people, help other people. You can't just be, you know, a brilliant jerk. But it comes down to, it comes down to, exceptional performance. It comes down to having bosses that believe in you and that want you to be successful and that are willing to mentor you. And then it comes down to being a good person and treating people well and getting along with people. But you know, anytime you're trying to buck a trend, so if you're younger than most people, or if you're doing something that's not traditional, you really need to work even harder. It might have been that competitive nature, and I, I didn't know that you played competitive tennis, but it all comes down to, and listening to your story, that that might have been a trait that you have that helped you really go aggressive, really understand what the folks, the stakeholders in your company wanted within your role, what was success to them, and you just delivered, and you made sure people knew about it. Is that correct? Absolutely. You have to make sure people know about it. You know, we're in a culture where modesty is viewed as more important than Trump, you know, uh, trumpeting your own horn. But people are very involved with themselves. You know, most people are so worried about what other people think of them. But the fact of the matter is people are very self-involved and they're not thinking about you even close to as much as you think they are because they have so many of their own issues and problems that they need to deal with. So you need to remind them of the things that you're doing. You need to tell them, hey, here are the great things I'm doing for your organization. And this is why you need to give me more responsibility, more money and a different title so I can do even more for you. So that's very important. And then the competitive thing that you brought up, absolutely. I'm very competitive and my biggest critic and who I'm most competitive with is myself. And no matter what I do, I want to win and I want to be competitive and I don't let setbacks get in my way. I think it's really important for anybody to think about where they want to channel their energy and to be very focused with that. And then once you decide you want something and you've set a goal for yourself, don't let anybody or anything stop you because there's going to be a lot of roadblocks. There's going to be a lot of naysayers. There's going to be a lot of things that don't go the way you want, but persistence and continued effort and outworking people uh, are keys. You know, there are no overnight successes. Something that I read about before coming into this interview was that you're pretty passionate about startups not going or raising fun money 
um, and be really revenue focused. I really related to that as when I started my company, me and my partner, we were all bootstrapped and we were all about just, just getting, get, get a paying customer. Why would I spend time and energy trying to raise money when I could just spend that same time and look for customers and grow that way? So can you tell me why you decided to that and why you keep preaching that as well? Right. Well, I think a lot of companies are mistaking success at raising money with success as a company. The reason I say that is a lot of companies, and this seems very basic, they don't know a Do people care about what they're selling? Can they sell it? They don't know that. Two, what can they sell that product for? And three, how much is it going to cost us to acquire a consumer? Because if you don't know, A, that people care about it, B, how much you can sell for, and C, how much it costs, in my mind, you don't have a business. So you have all of these companies that are trumpeting how much money they've raised and that they've raised even more money. But what you don't hear is that a lot of them, especially in the fintech space, are making no money, no profit, because it's costing them four times more to acquire a consumer than their consumer is worth to them. So look, I can go and raise $50 million and uh, and go into a business where it costs me $1,000 to acquire a consumer and that lifetime value of the consumer is only $250, but that is not a sustainable business. So the, the, the two reasons why I don't like Uh, that type of story and why I think it's, if you can, it's good to bootstrap is one, it really forces you to prove your business model so that you're not taking money from investors and basically squandering it. And you're not wasting your personal time and the time of your entire team um, on something that really doesn't have a chance to succeed. And then the second thing is if you do succeed, you know, you want to have as much equity as a founder as you can so that if you get it to a big enough place where you want to take it public or you want to sell it or you want to do a joint venture, you have as much equity as you can. Because if you raise a lot of capital from outside, you know, oftentimes you're left with single digits in terms of how much you own of the company. And then, you know, you've taken all this risk. You've not paid yourself for years. You've taken substandard salaries. And what are you left with? You're not left with that pot of gold that you should be at the end. So I would just really encourage all entrepreneurs to really stress test their ideas and make sure that A, people care. B, you know what you can sell it for. And C, you know what it costs. And that B and C are a positive number, not a negative number. It sounds so simple, but there's a lot of companies out there that both of us have heard about that are making a lot of noise that haven't got that equation right. I want to know, Justin, who are your biggest influences when it comes to business leadership? And I know before letting you answer, you did mention in your earlier career that you had great mentors. So I'm not sure if they're still there or they were the building blocks in that. But who are you looking to today as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, two of my biggest mentors were people that I worked for at Maple Leaf Foods, which is where I was before Cryptologic and then Cryptologic. So the CEO of Cryptologic and the vice president of business development, whose job I ended up taking uh, when he left the company at Cryptologic, both of them mentored me. They cared about me. They weren't afraid to tell me when I was messing up or when I wasn't doing things right or when I can do things better. They served as fantastic examples to me and you know, without them, I certainly wouldn't be 
where I am today. You know, outside of them, and, and you know, I could name 10 different things that they told me that I remember every single day uh, in, my, in, my, in my daily life, both business and personal, and so I, I can't thank them enough. Outside of that, you know, in terms of people that everyone would have heard of, uh, Jack Welsh is a big business influence on me. And then just in terms of everyday life, and we'll talk about this if you, you know a little bit later probably too. There's a there's a football player called Brett Favre that's a very big influence on me because just because he showed up every day. He was the ultimate Ironman. He never missed a game. And like I said, consistency, showing up and giving excellent effort every day and not making excuses, I think is fundamental to anyone's success. And he really personified that. And, you know, if a guy can have broken bones and torn tendons and you name it and show up every single day, you know, why can't I and give that right effort? It's great that how you look for influence, not only in the business world and within your passions of sport as well, like Brett Favre and there's a lot of similarities in t- when it comes to leadership, whether it's uh, sports leaders or business. So thank you for sharing that. Are there any books that you're reading when it comes to business leadership or or upping your skills as well in that fact? Yeah, I mean, the book, that's funny. That's why I mentioned Brett Favre, because the, the, the book that I'm reading right now is a book called Gunslinger by Jeff Perlman. It's a book about Brett Favre. I mean, I read business books. I've, I've, I've read more than my fair share, but that just happens to be what I'm reading right now. And it just reinforced... How much of an impact Brett Favre, who is my favorite player, had on my life? Because I don't use excuses. There's no excuses to me. You know, things happen. There's going to be setbacks. You're going to feel better certain days. You're going to feel worse certain days. Bad things are going to happen to you. You can't let that knock you off your path. You know, everyone's human and there's going to be things that impact you. And so, you know, maybe you're going to have a day or two when you can't do as well, but you, you can't let these excuses knock you off your path. And he never let excuses stop him from playing. He played every single game. He started every single game. And he took a franchise, the Green Bay Packers, from obscurity back to Super Bowl level almost on his own, you know, through his sheer force of will and through his consistent excellence. And so I really, really uh, appreciate that and make sure that that's something that I bring every single day. You know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, no one's working harder than me that no one's putting in more effort than me and that I can set the example to everyone that I'm making that effort every single day and that I don't just speak it, that I live it. So speaking about all the different relationships that you have within your organization today, what would everyone here say your best leadership quality is at this point? I think it would be making good decisions with minimal information. You know, we are a small company we are nimble and we don't have the luxury of paralysis by analysis. I think a lot of the, the big advantage that companies like ours have over larger companies is making decisions quickly and nimbly without a lot of levels of bureaucracy. And I think it's important to, to use your gut in decision making. You know, you, you need to, you need to know your numbers and you need to know which numbers are important. But there's some people in some companies that need just an overabundance of numbers to make a decision. I think that your gut is something that you really need to listen to. And once you look at the numbers, your gut is going to tell you what the right direction to go is. And so I think a really important leadership trait is being able to make a decision, first of all, to be decisive, but secondly, not belaboring it, to be able to make that decision quickly, 
decisively and not look back on it. And really to be able to use not just your mind, but also your gut, because your gut's very powerful. You know, you can make a decision where in your mind you say, oh, that makes sense, but there's something that kind of nags at you. Listen to that, because I think it's a very powerful motivator and a very powerful uh, tool. Before we end, I'd love to get your final thoughts, maybe some observations and perhaps some actionable items or recommendations for for the people who are listening and they want to grow as a business leader or perhaps take that plunge into entrepreneurship or, or anything to grow their career. Yeah, two things that we didn't talk about that I think are really important are one, flawless execution. So anyone can have a good idea. There's so many good ideas in the world, but you notice that not every good idea is successful. And why is that? It's because the execution falls down. I would much rather have a B idea with A execution than I would have an A idea with B execution. So I would say in anything that you do, make sure you understand what success looks like and understand and make sure that you execute it flawlessly. A good idea is not going to grow on its own. You can have the most fertile soil and the best plant in the world, but it's not going to grow and thrive unless you water it consistently, you you take the weeds out, etc. So please make sure that you execute because that's where I see a lot of people falling down. And the other thing is to anyone who aspires to be a leader who's in a leadership position, I'd encourage you to be totally honest and to be real with people. There's a lot of business people that talk in platitudes and who talk in these very complicated words and language that really don't mean anything and that aren't honest with their team. And that doesn't work. I think you need to be real with people. You need to respect everybody equally because everyone is equal, whether they're the CEO or whether they're an intern on the first day. Everybody brings value. Everybody brings good ideas. And you need to treat everybody that way and actually believe it inside that everybody's equal. And be transparent and be honest. You know, that that's one of the defining traits that I have. Um, and some people don't necessarily like it because I am brutally honest. Make sure that your team knows exactly where they stand with you at all times, good and bad, because you owe it to your company and you owe it to your team and to yourself to always be honest. You know, performance reviews, I think, are overrated because I think performance reviews happen every day. I think that it's always important for your team to know exactly where they stand with you, what they're doing well, what they need to improve on. And I think that that continuous feedback every day is really, really important. And now you're seeing big companies like Google espouse that. You're seeing Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook talk about that. But that's really important. And that still doesn't exist very much in the business world. Great. So to close, Justin, please please tell the listeners where they could find out more information about you, lowestrates.ca, which is, a, I'm sure, the domain, or anything the, any financial literacy that you could share or even some tennis matches that you might be at? Yeah, I mean, check out lowestrates.ca. Anyone can email me at justin at lowestrates.ca. You can check me out on LinkedIn. And yeah, look look for me on tennis courts around Toronto. Love to have a game. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on the Business Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. That's it, everyone. Thank you for listening to the episode. Really loved Justin's mission. It never really occurred to me how much we trust the financial institutes, especially here in Canada. So I'm really glad that he started this service and this mission. If you are interested in learning more about Justin, lowestrates.ca, and anything he mentioned, please go to 
thebusinessleadership.com slash 021. That's for episode 21. I'd love to hear from you. So feel free to reach out personally, directly to me via email. Send it to edwin at thebusinessleadership.com. We are still serving our listeners. So if you have not done so yet, please take a few minutes and visit our website and click on the survey link found on the homepage. But thank you again. And until next time, Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.